You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. innovators transforming medication management. The Future of Pharmacy podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. Now here's our host, Ken Perez. Welcome to the Future of Pharmacy podcast. I'm Ken Perez, OmniCell Vice President of Healthcare Policy, and I'm your host. Thank you for joining us today. We're very excited that you found us and ask that you subscribe to our monthly podcast. Today's topic is vitally important to the future of health system pharmacy. When it comes to adoption of technologies to improve outcomes for patient safety, efficiency, and cost, sterile compounding preparation is a clear laggard. In fact, studies have shown that only about one in four health systems is actually using workflow automation to compound sterile products. And just about 5% of health systems use robotics for sterile compounding. Why is this? Particularly given the patient safety risks associated with using manual processes or outsourcing to 503B compounders that we've witnessed in recent years. Joining me today to discuss this topic are two experts, Mark Neuenschwander, founding director of Thrive. Mark, welcome to the program. Honored to be here, Ken. Good to see you. Good to see you. And we also have Derek Gillespie, pharmacy operations manager at renowned regional medical center and someone who has personally seen how important IV preparation safety is. Derek, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ken. I'm honored to be able to contribute today. Mark, for more than 25 years, you have been unrelenting in advocating for medication safety. Someone said you are to barcode scanning at the bedside what Ralph Nader was to seat belts in automobiles. (laughs) For your leadership in the cause, ISMP awarded you their Lifetime Achievement Award. I don't know if you consider retiring, but I do know that you've chosen to stay in the fight. Bring us up to date on your current mission. I know that you're younger than me, Kim, but I don't know about retirement. (laughs) Uh, But thanks for asking. Uh, I'd like to begin with a question, if I could. Ken, what if Delta lost one of every 10 bags we checked, or if every 10th Amazon order delivered to our porches contained the wrong ingredients? I think they'd both be out of business. Well, seminal research from 1997 on IV compounding practices has haunted me for years. A five-hospital study found that 9%, nearly 1 in 10, compounded preparations contained wrong ingredients and or incorrect volumes. Now, I realize 1997 may sound to some like a beyond-use dated study. However, the vast majority of IVs being compounded in hospitals today are prepared essentially the same way they were two decades ago, four decades ago, giving us little reason to believe that error rates are lower now than they were then. In our technological world, I found and I find this unconscionable. Mark, do you happen to know Delta and Amazon's error rates? I do, bags checked with Delta, fail to show up just 0.2% of the time. And most of those are eventually found. An Amazon executive here in Seattle told me error rates at their fulfillment centers 
run below 0.1%. And both companies continue chasing zero, even though it's hard for me to believe that losing a suitcase or shipping an incorrect title or wrong size t-shirt has harmed a customer. So two years ago, we formed Thrive, a safety coalition comprised of healthcare providers, consumers, and technology developers with the objective of protecting patients from being harmed and caregivers from unwittingly doing harm, harm which too often stems from compounding errors made in pharmacies upstream when IVs are manually prepared. We can get error rates down, down to or even below deltas and Amazons. So Derek, how can hospitals get closer to Amazon's level of accuracy? Probably the simplest way to do that would be to order drugs in the ready-to-administer form. Um, it'd be the safest as well. Those drugs are manufactured under good manufacturing practices, uh, and, um, and they have quality control associated with the mixing of those drugs. And they come with a barcode that's affixed to the product that's readily, uh, readily recognizable electronic medical record systems. Um, so that'd be a great place to start. And boy, we wish we could do that for everything, but that's just not possible within a hospital environment. Many of the drugs um, that have to be administered to patients have to be compounded on site. You know, first is that um, not every drug is available in a ready-to-administer format. And so we either have a bulk bottle of a concentration or um, it just doesn't come uh, already diluted in, uh, in the format that's needed. Um, and then even when they do uh, come in, we buy many products uh, that way, ready to use, and then suddenly there will be a shortage. And when the shortage occurs, suddenly you have a product line that you're not able to provide for patients and you have to um, compound those. Um, in many cases, those, compounding those drugs are outside of your normal systems or outside of uh, your normal practices, and that also uh, introduces a, uh, a risk. Um, some drugs have very short stability, and so especially once in solution. So once um, they are diluted, uh, they have to be given within a shorter time frame to patients. So it wouldn't allow a, a, uh, a supply chain to be able to provide that. Um, many of these drugs are kept in the refrigerator and um, have to be mixed up just before administration. And I think the last thing that keeps us from doing that is that uh, drugs have to be individualized to uh, specific patients. This is especially true in the pediatric environment where most uh, drugs are ordered by uh, kilogram or by the weight of the patient and have to be highly individualized or they would be um, they would pose risk to those patients. And also in oncology patients where chemotherapy drugs, which um, can be um, have, have a great number of side effects if they're given at a dose that's too high, have to be adjusted uh, individually to the patient. So for those, of course, we have to compound the exact dose uh, within the pharmacy. And so for all of those reasons, um, there's quite a number, a large number of medications that we must compound within the hospital pharmacy. And so if we're going to be doing that uh, as a regular part of our business, we really uh, have to make sure that we have practices in place to make that safe for our patients. Yeah, we got to get them right. And that's where Thrive comes to play. Our mission involves championing the universal adoption and faithful utilization of workflow management systems, systems which, like Amazons and Deltas, are proven to increase accuracy. Uh, automation that makes it harder for error-prone humans to get IVs wrong, easier to get them right, so that we end up with the drug, the whole drug, and nothing but the drug, so help us God. It seems like the U.S. Pharmacopeia would already have such requirements in place. You know, Ken, I wish they did, and, and believe me, we're working 
hard to see that they will. Uh, the preambles in their most recent USP chapters on sterile preparations do require compounding pharmacies uh, ensure both sterility and accuracy for all finished products. However, if you get into the weeds of those chapters, you will quickly find they have focused almost exclusively on refining and requiring practices for ensuring sterility, even including certain technology requirements like airflow and purification systems. However, for whatever reasons, USP has neglected to articulate best practices for ensuring accuracy and has issued no expectations related to technologies proven to achieve the same. So you've got sterility and accuracy. We believe checking only one of the boxes doesn't fly. Both wings are required for preparations to fly safely. It's futile to argue over which is more or less important than the other. We argue that just as no one wants an IV that is not sterile, no one wants an IV that is not accurate, even if it is sterile. And what about organizations like ASHP and ISMP? For years, both have articulated best practices and procedures for achieving uh, sterility and accuracy. Uh, which we applaud and fully affirm as far as they go. Uh, disappointingly, ASHP has been unwilling to take a position on IV automation. ISMP, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, on the other hand, has taken a strong stand, highly recommending IV workflow technologies. But neither of these august bodies has the regulatory authority to move automated workflow technologies from something hospitals should use to something that they shall use. And so as activists, Thrive is pressing that IV workflow systems be required, required by regulatory accrediting and grading bodies. In the meantime, we relentlessly appeal to all who prepare IVs that they voluntarily employ these automated workflow systems for virtually every IV preparation they must make in-house. You're listening to the Future of Pharmacy podcast. I'm Ken Perez, your host, speaking with special guests, Mark Neuenschwander and Derek Gillespie. Derek, I cited a stat at the beginning of today's program that about one in four hospitals are using IV technology systems today. Why do you think adoption is so low? First, I just want to make a quick clarification that um, there are a few studies out there. Some say that as many as 50% of hospitals are using IV safety software systems, and they may include some components such as barcode, um, barcoding, and also image capture, taking a picture of the uh, admixture. But when you start defining uh, IV workflow systems as Thrive defines them, and I know Mark is going to talk about that later, that number then goes down to a quarter. So um, and, and there's a significant uh, difference in that, and that by using uh, IV systems that, as Thrive defines them, you eliminate some of the workarounds and other opportunities for errors to occur. Now, why isn't this um, widely adopted? I think that uh, Mark just alluded to that. Um, it is not regulatory required of hospitals to do that. So, um, you know, hospitals or businesses um, and they do have a need to serve their communities. But as they sit down and prepare budgets each year, um, they have to first address those things that they must do. And those are requirements. And then there's things that they should do. 
So once you've already paid for everything that you must do, then you start competing with other projects for what you should do. And we have a year, this year has been dominated by COVID. So COVID has meant uh, high investments in equipment such as ventilators and extra beds and IV poles and things to deal with that. In, in the same time, uh, some of the surgeries were canceled. So revenue was uh, decreased at hospitals. So it can be very difficult to compete uh, for those uh, limited resources. So being required uh, will, will um, certainly make it easier for pharmacy leaders um, to advocate for the purchase of this. They're not overly expensive systems. Um, even in a hospital of the size of Renown, I think we were going to equip 10 IV hoods uh, you know, with this IV, safe, IV safety software. It would have uh, cost us less than adding an additional pharmacist. So it's not that these are terribly expensive. It's just that the resources are scarce and there's much competition for those resources. And then the last uh, barrier that uh, we face a lot is with um, just resources from support services and most notably information technology. Everything these days is becoming electronic and serviced on the cloud and it takes IT resources to make those things happen. And so they have a limited number of staff and they can only accomplish so many things in a year. So we hear all those things as we try to push forward um, projects like IV safety uh, workflow systems. Well, that's very helpful. Now, Mark, you are well known across the country and around the world for your laser focus on promoting barcode medication administration systems in hospitals. What prompted you to redirect your attention from the point of administration upstream to the point of preparation? Before a barcode had ever been scanned at a bedside, I found myself advocating for scanning wristbands and medications for a match so that the right drugs were being given to the right patients at the right time. Interestingly, while we had barcode technologies at the turn of the millennium, they were all dressed up with nothing to scan. Medication labels did not have barcodes. And so I jumped into the fray with a host of others, compelling the FDA to require barcodes on all immediate drug packages, which thank God, they did in 2004. And yet it took another 10 years to achieve near universal adoption of bedside scanning. But the good news, as anticipated, studies showed that hospitals saw dramatic reductions in administration and documentation errors. Now, by that time, I was 65. And I figured I had completed what I set out to do and I could hang up my spurs. <laughs> it doesn't appear that you've retired. Well, at the end of 2014, I was involuntarily lassoed back into another rodeo. The irresistible calling to form Thrive actually came from a sentinel event at an excellent hospital in Bend, Oregon, uh, that bedside barcoding was not capable of intercepting. Now, Derek, you experienced that error and felt its impact in a personal way. Yes, Ken, I happen to be the director of pharmacy at the hospital where that event occurred. You know, I'd like to tell that story so that uh, everybody understands what occurred and then maybe talk about the impact uh, that that had on the family and then also at people working at the hospital. About this time of year, between the holidays, a 65-year-old member of our community, Loretta McPherson, had recently undergone surgical removal of a benign brain tumor. She was recovering at home with her two adult sons and I believe her two grandchildren. She was experiencing some symptoms that could be related to that surgery, things like confusion, and unsteadiness that would not be uncommon with a brain surgery. Her sons brought her into the ER for evaluation. 
And that evaluation turned out to be without any findings. She was fine and she could be discharged and returned to home. She did have one thing though, she was taking a drug called phenytoin and phenytoin helps to control seizures. Um, and her phenytoin level, it's very important that you maintain a level, her level was low. And so the doctor ordered 500 milligrams of phosphenytoin IV to boost her level before she could return home. The order was received in the central pharmacy and a label was printed for the admixture. In the pharmacy, a technician's job is to monitor that label printer and she picked up the label and went to the refrigerator and she removed a drug that's called rocuronium um, instead of phosphenytoin. She made a human error. From that point on, as she went into the IV hood, she knew that she had rocuronium in her hand and she prepared the IV piggyback just as if she was mixing rocuronium. And that include placing on auxiliary warning labels. We put warning labels on any time rocuronium or other, we call them paralytics are used. She then uh, completed her work and then presented that uh, admixture to the pharmacist for check. And when the pharmacist checked the admixture for accuracy, they did not catch the error. Now, it seems strange. How did the pharmacist not catch the error? But there's something um, called confirmation bias that plagues all of us as human, e as human beings. We see what we believe that we're seeing, and we convince our mind that that's true. And I really believe that the uh, three vials, which rocuronium comes in, and the auxiliary labels that made it clear that we had a paralytic, um, led her to believe that she was checking a 500-milligram bag of rocuronium. And she saw 500 milligram on the label and she uh, checked it. She failed to see that the label said phosphenytoin, another human error. So the drug um, was sent up to the emergency room and was administered to the patient. Now, rocuronium, as I said, is what we call a paralytic. And what a paralytic does is it causes voluntary muscles in the body to be unable to contract. You're unable to contract voluntary muscles. And one of our voluntary muscles is our diaphragm, which controls our breathing. And so as a, role, as a result of receiving the paralytic, Loretta McPherson was unable to breathe. Um, and she was left there with her uh, IV infusion for a short period of time. And when she was uh, discovered after that, she was in full cardiac arrest. A code was called, which is what happens in the hospital environment. And um, they were able to restore her heart rate, but they could not restore her breathing. In fact, as they would do further tests, they would not be able to restore any any um, higher level brain function. Loretta had experienced what we call uh, an anoxic brain injury, which means the lack of oxygen by not being able to breathe had caused uh, parts of her brain uh, to cease to work. Um, she would be removed from life support two days late, later in her ICU, and she would die from basically, I mean, a avoidable medication error. Um, so as we talk about impact, some of the impacts I, hit me every year at this time of year. Um, Loretta McPherson did not get to enjoy that Christmas with her two sons and her grandchildren and did not get to enjoy any further uh, Christmases. And her family certainly has um, had the ability to interact with her taken away from them. Uh, Loretta is a 65-year-old lady, but she was a vibrant person and a vibrant member of our community. And uh, we lost that person as a result of a medication error. I do know that the technician that prepared the um, admixture and the pharmacists that did the check um, did not work another day in healthcare. Um, they uh, chose not to continue their professions going forward as an impact of the error. Um, it has a devastating effect on those people that are directly related to. I think there are similar stories, but not the same with the nurses that were involved with administering the drug and with some of the caregivers that um, uh, participated in the code for the patient as she was moved to the ICU. 
And then uh, further from that, I know um, the physician um, was deeply affected, uh, the physician that took care of her after the event, as well as the physician that ordered the medications um, were deeply affected by that. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to our pharmacy and our pharmacists and our technicians uh, following the error. Um, you, as you can imagine, there um, was a lot of embarrassment uh, and, a, and a feeling that we had failed the community, we had failed this patient. I know some of the caregivers talked about not wanting to wear their badge when they went to the cafeteria and not wanting to be associated with pharmacy. Um, the effects were very deep. Nobody came to work that day with an intent to harm anyone. In fact, they came with the opposite intent. But we are human beings and we all make errors. And until we have a system in place that helps us with that, helps us manage that, uh, these errors will continue to occur. Yeah, you know, uh, Derek, it's so important that we protect patients. It's equally important that we protect caregivers. Even as physicians take their oath to do no harm, nurses pledge they will not knowingly administer any harmful drug. I remember in 2010, a nurse here in Seattle at the Children's Hospital with 25 years of exemplary service in caring for infants accidentally overdosed a baby with 10 times the concentration of sodium chloride dose ordered. The baby died. Three months later, the nurse took her own life. We didn't need to lose either of them. Patients and caregiver lives matter. Well, Mark, earlier Derek referred to IV workflow management systems as Thrive defines them. Tell us about Thrive's technology checklist. Well, if any of you have not read Atul Gawande's checklist manifesto, you must add it to and check it off your reading list. Uh, Gawande brilliantly outlines the science and value of simple manual checklists. Uh, he covers checklists used in aviation and construction, the culinary arts, and ultimately gets to his area of study, operating suites. And he talks about simple lists in, uh, on the walls in an operating room that list things like, did everyone scrub in? Was the patient given an antibiotic? Is blood on hand? Four or five items, he says, that's all you need, that he calls the dumb stuff which is so important, but is all too easily overlooked to the detriment of patients. And in his book, he appeals to healthcare stakeholders to incorporate such lists in their various areas of practice. So it appears that you have taken Gawande's advice. Well, we have, very seriously. Thrive has crafted a technology checklist, which is available on our website, uh, which outlines five criteria we believe IV workflow systems must meet or exceed. So when selecting a system, we believe hospitals should check all five boxes to avoid accidentally skipping the obvious. Can you briefly run through the checklist for us, Mark? I'd be glad to share the checklist. Uh, the first item is workflow management software. Workflow software that guides compounders and robotics safely through fulfilling each preparation. Like a Gawande checklist, only even better, it's an automated checklist, not only guiding compounders step-by-step -step through each recipe, but also incorporating forcing functions that won't allow proceeding to next steps until previous steps have been completed 
and verified. It's like an electronic form we're all familiar with on the internet when we're ordering something that won't allow us to get to checkout until we have filled in our zip code and our phone number and all the boxes required. So number one, workflow software. Number two, barcode scanning. To verify that each component, each ingredient, diligent, drug, additive, selected is the correct one. Number three, volume verification. Right volume is as important as right drug. Checking this box involves employing a combination of proven technologies that verify volumes of base solutions and additives as being correct. Uh, these include things like image capture, which requires and enables a second set of physical eyes to verify that the right drugs and right volumes were used by the technician. Even more precisely, gravimetrics, where weighing ingredients before and after draws and fills verifies volumes and doesn't allow anyone to proceed if they are not right. And it's got to be a combination because some of these technologies like gravimetrics, as good as it is, uh, doesn't necessarily work when we get into nanodosing for pediatrics. And so a combination is really needed and there's more discussion on our website for this uh, third criteria. And then number four is auto labeling. Uh, IV automation must produce barcoded labels for final preparations after each step has been verified, uh, ready for scanning at the point of administration. And number five, auto documentation. The systems must concurrently record and timestamp each preparation step. This serves as a black box in the event of a crash and it assists in fulfilling USP documentation requirements. Again, you'll find this list in uh, its fullness at our website. Michael Cohen at ISMP says, I really hope that people would go to the Thrive website, download the guidelines, and make sure they are compliant. <laughs> Mark, your thoughts on Michael's advice? Well, we appreciate the affirmation, and we are honored to have Michael on our Thrive Advisory Board and to have ISMP as an advocate organization. Uh, their published guidelines for safe preparation of, of compounded sterile products, in our opinion, in everybody's opinion, is the Bible on the subject. Uh, Thrive simply takes a verse or two from a chapter in their book and advocates for the use of IV workflow systems as best and expected practice for all pharmacies preparing all doses. Now, Derek, what can pharmacy leaders do to support the cause? They have to advocate for the use of the software, and they have to be consistent about saying it has to be used over the widest uh, scope of medications that are being compounded as possible. I think the first thing that they need to do is when they go to their budget process or what, however they advocate their needs uh, to the senior leadership at their organization, they have to put IV workflow safety systems at the top of their list. Um, it has to be as important as anything else that we're working on. In fact, um, once you have done uh, that uh, conversion and put yourself on a safety system, you start getting data and you can't imagine um, how you ever uh, made it without this software. It becomes the most important thing that you do. 
Um, and so I think that that's the first thing I, I want to echo also that, that uh, they should go to Thrive's uh, website and tackle the technology checklist and sign up as a champion for IV accuracy. I have made that step. And I think it's a good place to, to gauge where are you as an organization? You might be using barcoding, but do you have image capture? And if you have a gap between where you are and where you're functioning and where the Thrive guidelines are, set about a work plan to get there. I know at Renown, we were unable to buy a set-aside IV workflow system, so we optimize what we could do through our electronic medical record. Now, we don't meet all of Thrive's uh, checkpoints, and we need to continue to work to achieve that. But in the meantime, we are using components of this, and I know that we are saving very serious errors from making their way to the patient, and so it's really important. The other thing is pharmacy leaders, I think that they need to take a step back, even if they have this in place, and say, where are we using it? If you're just using it for high-risk medications, um, you certainly would miss the event that occurred up in Bend. That was phosphenitoin is not a high-risk medication. If you're only using it for pediatric and oncology patients, then you're only protecting pediatric and oncology patients patients and you're leaving the rest of them at risk. What I have discovered in the two places that we have implemented this, uh, both in Bend and, and uh, here in Reno, is um, anywhere you're using a patient-specific label, you are pulling a product from stock. Uh, for those in the industry, a patient-specific label is something that's printed by electronic medical record that says this product goes with this person's electronic medical record. Once you put a patient-specific label on an IV bag or a product, it becomes gospel. And that is what the nurse goes to barcode, not the barcode on the product. So we have used the IV safety software anytime that we put a patient-specific label, not only on an IV bag, but also on some other high-risk medications like vaccines and insulins. And one of the things that I've discovered is that our propensity for making errors as human beings is much higher in those than it is even in the IV compounding space. Uh, the next uh, area of opportunity is for oral solutions that uh, go to pediatric patients. And you take an oral bulk bottle of medications and you pull up a specific amount into a syringe, you have an opportunity to pull the wrong medication. You have an opportunity to pull the wrong amount of medication. So um, that's another thing I would run through IV safety software. So really take a look at your environment and where you might use even what you have in place to save more events. Every, every event that you save is an impact. And so um, I'm very proud of the work that uh, has been at the institutions that I have been at, um, where we've utilized this and then expanded it so that we go way beyond just pediatrics uh, and oncology, but again, uh, try to give it the broadest amount of impact. Thanks, Derek. Mark, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, thanks, uh, Derek. It, it is such an honor to be with you on this. You should have done the, the whole podcast by yourself. It would have been worth the time. Um, you know, we would not want to suggest there's anything easy about doing this. Uh, in the film Out of Africa, Karen Blixen, played by Meryl Streep, said, perhaps God made the earth round so we can't see too far ahead. When we were fighting for bedside barcoding, we had no idea it would be so difficult and take so long. We thought maybe five years. Perhaps blessed naivete got us started and kept us going. I was inspired during those years by hearing about an 80-some-year-old rabbi being asked if he might be willing to share what he thought was his greatest strength and then his greatest weakness. Now, I would have skirted both those questions, but he didn't. Without hesitating, he said, my greatest strength in 60 years, I haven't quit. My greatest weakness, every day I have felt like quitting. Someone said the reason mountain climbers are tied together 
is to keep the sane ones from going home. Thrive is intended to keep us together all the way up to the summit. And so I invite you to spend a few moments at thrivecoalition.org. I think you'll quickly resonate with our mission, and I hope you will seriously consider, as Derek and Michael and uh, Cohen and, and Ken and a host of others have, adding the strength of your good name to our compelling list of champions for IVacracy. It doesn't cost anything except for a minute of your time. Finally, whether we are preparing IVs in clean rooms, administering them to patients at points of care, or one day find their contents dripping into our veins or the veins of a loved one, we're sure you will agree. We all want just what the doctor ordered. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. I want to thank very much our expert guests, Mark Neuenschwander, founding director of Thrive, and Derek Gillespie, pharmacy operations manager at Renown Regional Medical Center. Now, remind us, Mark, where can our listeners learn more about Thrive, get the IV technology checklist, and sign on as a champion for IV accuracy? Thrivecoalition.org. That's T-H-R-I-V, coalition.org. And also, you'll find there, if you're in the throes of considering all of this, you'll find an extensive invaluable bibliography, which is free. That's thrivecoalition.org. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us today for the Future of Pharmacy podcast and for OmniCell. I'm Ken Perez. Thanks for listening. This has been the Future of Pharmacy podcast, featuring the innovators transforming medication management. Until next time, don't get stuck in the clouds. The Future of Pharmacy podcast is brought to you by OmniCell. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.